Hello, I'm Karen Hansen, Provost of Indiana University. Welcome to WFIU's Profiles. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Ellen Ketterson, Distinguished Professor of Biology at IU and a founding member of the Center for the Integrative Study of Animal Behavior. She's widely recognized and honored for her contributions to our understanding of animal behavior and evolutionary biology. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a fellow of the American Ornithologists' Union, and she's also won the AOU's Career Achievement Award. She's been a Guggenheim Fellow, and her teaching has also been recognized with numerous important awards. Professor Ketterson has been at IU since her career began. In fact, she began at IU as a student. Her AB, MA, and PH degrees are all from IU. Ellen, could you tell us a little bit about your career path, how you began, I noticed, in botany, and then shifted to zoology? Thank you very much, Karen, and it's nice to be here today, so thank you for inviting me. I was an undergraduate here at Indiana and a botany major, as you say. My mother loved plants, so sometimes that's how things begin, of course, and uh, I loved being here uh, at Indiana, and I was always interested in higher education, in a a sort of a career in higher Mm -hmm. education in the sense that my sister is married to a faculty member, so that was my aspiration in the 60s. I thought, well, I'll just marry a faculty member. And somewhere along the line, I thought, no, I'd like to be a faculty (laughs) member. So I needed to find the right uh, right thing to study. And while I enjoyed the plants very much, uh, I found my curiosity was brought about all the more by animals. And so after a master's in botany, I uh, took a little time, worked as a lab technician in the laboratory of a botanist who studied photosynthesis, uh, but became very interested in animal behavior. I read a book by Conrad Lorenz called On Aggression, and it had a big influence on me. And so behavior and animals. Lorenz also wrote a book called King Solomon's Ring, and that was a a bunch of short uh, vignettes about different kinds of animals and the experiences that he had with them. And I just realized I was very intrigued and decided to study behavior and looked around to see who here at Indiana University uh, was also studying animal behavior. And the person who was was uh, Val Nolan, who studied birds. And so the birds actually came second in an academic sense, uh, although my brother had been a bird watcher and he was considerably older than I. So I think he seeded birds in my brain when I was five or six. And then in my early 20s, when these interests came together, it was a combination of behavior and birds here at Indiana. So it was a, a combination, really, of, of a kind of curiosity about the world that was fostered in part by your family and uh, and also an interest in higher education. Yes. It helps explain part of your career combining so successfully research and teaching. Well, thank you very much for the compliment. I think when we look back, even then, it's very hard to tell, right, how the pieces came together. But I did have a family who thought a great deal that, that education was very important. Uh, So I knew that I could please my parents. Uh, That does not mean I was a particularly uh, enthused student as an undergraduate. That came later. But that was a way to um, fulfill their dreams for me, and then those dreams became my dreams. uh, Well, one of the things you study right now is is gender. Were there any gender issues in your own life as you became a scientist? It's much more common to find women biologists um, in in this year, but perhaps not so much when you started. Right. I think that's true. There were not a lot of female students, uh, or certainly not a lot of female faculty uh, when I was coming up. I said my family thought education was important, so my mother had been in the humanities. She'd been an English student and earned a master's degree at the University of Chicago and had this com- combined love of the theater of the arts and of of outdoors, of plants. So I think that certainly was a stimulus. And then she'd been, you know, an educated woman. Uh, so I had an opportunity to see what her education meant to her. She didn't teach. She raised three children. But she did everything she could to enrich our lives with the education that, that she had earned. And then I think coming here, the it was the '60s, Karen. I don't. I think I'm older than you, so I think that the years that influenced so. me. 
<laughs> were different than the years that influenced you. But here were these opportunities, right? I mean, people were saying, well, why not you? Mm-hmm. And uh, why can't we? I'm not going to do that have-it-all sort of thing. Just why can't we contribute in our own names? And mm-hmm. so I was uh, driven to do that. And driven's probably a right word mm-hmm. uh, looking back. Uh, so, yes, I think one of the things that gives me pleasure now is the opportunity to be a senior female scientist when, while there will be quite a few of those uh, in a few more years, uh, there still aren't a great deal because of my having been part of that, not myself, but the leading edge of that uh, generation. So yes, I think it's very important for young people to be learning from diverse teachers. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, gender was about the best we could do. We have much more richness now in the faculty for the students, and I'm sure that lets lets many more students see themselves as grown-ups, either applying their education or pursuing their education. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I'm sure that's important. As you've developed your career, you've worked in um, areas described as physiological, behavioral, and population ecology. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit about what that means? Okay, I'll do my best. Let's see. So ecology was common to all those, population ecology, behavioral ecology, physiological ecology. Ecology is organisms interacting with their environment, living things uh, being influenced by their environments. And in fact, of course, uh, the living beings are having an influence on the environments themselves. It's a, it's a two-way thing. But understanding the match between organisms and their environment and how they're likely to respond if that environment changes is something that's always intrigued me. So when you say population biology or population ecology, that's referring to the distributions of plants and animals. And if, for example, the climate changes, uh, how might the distribution of populations change? Uh, Behavioral ecology would have more to do with adaptations between plants, animals, living things, and their environment. How, and of course, behavior applies more to animals than to plants, but not only to animals. Uh, how do animals respond to their changing environments by changing the date at which they breed, the numbers of mates uh, they choose to form pair bonds with, uh, whether they participate in caring for their offspring or not. All of those would be matching in adaptation sense the behavior to the environment. And finally, the physiology is the inside. So I think of the physiology as the I don't know, the center of the Oreo cookie, you know. <laughs> and uh, so there's genes, and then there's physiology in the middle, and then there's these things that we see from the outside, including behavior. And all of that needs to work together if organisms are to be able to persist, perform well in an environment, to adapt to a new environment. And so those various levels of distribution, behavioral adaptations, uh, the physiology that's the cream in the middle is what intrigues me. You, you mentioned that uh, there was an interest in bird watching in your family. Is the work you do now a combination of observational and experimental work? What, what, what is, how do you do the science? Right. Well, it's absolutely a combination of both those things. And uh, the fact that we can do both is what I think allows us to learn new things, which is what we're about, right? Generating, generating new knowledge. But yes, I prefer, and when I say I, I'm really speaking for a group of individuals that are, uh, people say laboratory, but it's it's sort of paradoxical because we're field biologists, all right? So you can talk about the Ketterson Laboratory. But what we're really talking about is the Ketterson-Nolan Research Group that uh, prefers to ground its findings in natural environments. So we spend a lot of time in the field observing birds, uh, catching birds, putting bands on their legs so we can tell one from the other. Uh, individuals. We don't really give them names. They have numbers and colors. Uh, But sometimes if a bird lives for a long time, you begin to have a a sense of what you would call it if you could. Uh, We find their nests. We mark their eggs. We measure their young as they grow. We count the number of days between when they finished rearing one set of young and uh, starting another nest. And very importantly, because they are marked as individuals, we can determine whether they survive from year to year. So We do long-term studies. We've been working at one site in Virginia for um, 25 years, and that's given us many opportunities to see how long birds live uh, as a function of various things that we measure about them. So those would be all observational things in the field. Sometimes the field is a little too chaotic, so we bring birds into captivity and we observe their behavior there. 
and that's uh, usually short-term observations of behavior, and then we can return them to the field. And we do do experiments, and the experiments that we do ref- uh, relate to that uh, middle of the Oreo cookie again, so the physiology in, in the middle, which is hormones. So we're interested in how hormones, particularly the hormone testosterone, influences behavior in both males and females. We're very interested in sex differences. Uh, and so we'll manipulate testosterone. So you can take that hormone that many of us are very, very familiar with, and we associate it with manlyhood and aggression, and, but it really affects all sorts of things. So the multifaceted nature of the hormone's influence on behavior and physiology is the core of what we do. And if we want to know, as we do, why does the bird we study, which is called the dark-eyed junco or the snowbird, why does it have the amount of testosterone that it does have? Why doesn't it have more? Why doesn't it have less? Why do males care for the young but perhaps not sit on the eggs? These are questions that we would like to know the answer to. And what we can do is elevate the hormone in the birds. We can put a little uh, silastic tube the same way you might manipulate a hormone in a, in a woman to uh, re- relate to birth control or something. So we can just insert a little implant with hormone and elevate it experimentally. And then we have two groups of birds. We have the birds that have the empty implants that are typical And we have the birds with the experimentally elevated testosterone, which are our study subjects. And we say, okay, now let's go measure all those things that we talked about before. How many babies do you have? How many eggs do you have? How fast do your young grow? How many days pass between the first nest and the second nest? Are you as likely to come back the next year if you have high levels of testosterone as opposed to the normal levels of testosterone? And that experimental approach allows us to understand evolution in action. It really allows us to experimentally say, well, if birds were different than they are, uh, would they perform better? Would they perform more poorly? And by making that contrast, we can understand either what maintains the status quo, why they are the way they are, or perhaps uh, what they would have the capacity to do if the environment were to change because these are things that they could do if they elevated their testosterone naturally. What would be the consequences of that? That's enormously interesting. Can you give us a few examples? I mean, this idea that of experimental modification of the birds using hormones to to study their adaptation. You've been doing this for 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 some time, and (laughs) I'm I'm sure you've seen some very interesting phenomena. What happens when you do that? Are there are there trade offs for the birds? Indeed, trade offs is exactly the right word, Karen. You must be a biologist in the making. (laughs) In fact, trade-offs are what we are most interested in, uh, trying to understand uh, birds and people and other animals and organisms typically have a finite amount of time or energy that they can allocate to one form of behavior or another, to a long life or a short life. And so those allocation decisions are key to understanding the natural history of a species. And when you manipulate testosterone in songbirds, the typical response is to enhance, I'm talking males now, we've actually studied males and females, but I'm focusing for the moment on males, to enhance what we call mating effort at the expense of parental effort. So I'll elaborate in a second, but that's the trade-off then between uh, engaging in behaviors that will be attractive to females and perhaps allow the male to acquire additional mates, more singing, more moving around in their home ranges, uh, more puffing of their feathers at the expense of uh, what they do more typically after their young hatch, which is go out and get food for the young. So their job when the young hatch is supposed to be, if I'll put quotes around that, to uh, be out collecting insects and bringing those insects back to their offspring so that they will grow at the optimal rate So what we find is that if we experimentally elevate testosterone, males allocate more effort, more uh, energy, more time to mating and less to parenting. They also (laughs) allocate more to reproduction in general than they do to what we call self-maintenance. So another big trade-off is that between uh, reproduction and lifespan. And when uh, male juncos, our songbird again, are treated with experimentally elevated testosterone, uh, they do um, acquire more mates and sire more offspring, sire as in provide the sperm for, than males who don't have experimentally elevated testosterone, but they don't live as long. So they're less likely to return 
in the succeeding breeding season than they would have been if they hadn't been treated with the testosterone. So both those trade-offs, mating effort and parental effort, and uh, lifespan and reproduction can be manipulated uh, through an experimental elevation of testosterone. And mind you, the hormone isn't toxic, right? So it isn't like you give them the hormone and they fall over or something. They go about doing all the things they normally do, but they just change their ratio. Mm-hmm. And, and it's it a behavioral shows up. change. It's a behavioral mm-hmm. change and a little physiological change too, mm-hmm. immune function and ability to presumably resist diseases. We know more immune, about immune function than we do about uh, resistance to diseases. But there's some physiology in there too. So mm-hmm. I think we're tying these themes together between generic disciplines and then how they uh, show up when you're studying a particular bird in the field. That's enormously interesting, and it is almost irresistible to try to move from your Junko <laughs> model to, to humans, but let, let's hold on that for a minute. I, I, I really do want to ask you about that. But the account that you're giving now of, of some of their behaviors that are related to reproduction and some of their elements of fitness for kind of their, their mm-hmm. ordinary individual life are are so interesting. You cast a lot of the work as um, involving questions about sex and gender for for these animals. I think for many of us lay people, uh, we think of sex as something that's kind of a biological concept and gender as a sociological concept. How does it work in in your area of research, that distinction between sex and gender? Right, right. That's very interesting to me. Because we always, we we biologists, this is not going to be a direct response to your question right off, but we biologists always used to say sex. And uh, just the generic use of gender is relatively new, I think. And I actually think, if this isn't too much for a family program, that once we began to use the word sex for intimate relations, we became less comfortable with using it for referring to males and females. Uh, so as biologists, we still often just refer to males and females and talk about the male sex and the female sex. But when I uh, associate with my colleagues in gender studies, then they make a very clear distinction, the same one you made when you introduced mm-hmm. the question, which is sex may be your biological classification and gender may be your self-concept as to whether you identify most closely with being male or female. And if birds have a counterpart for that, of perceiving themselves as male or female, I don't know how to measure it, all right? But the cognitive psychologist may. So in time, the kind of functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI that we can currently do on humans, I think there's every reason to think that those um, instruments will be miniaturized in time and that we will have analogous regions in the brain for the human and for other vertebrate animals, including fish, birds, and mammals. And while we won't know ever, I think, what the sensation of being female-like or male-like is uh, to a bird or a fish, we will be able to know whether there are analogous behavioral substrates, and by that I mean portions of the brain, that are activated in similar ways when, for example, if you show a female human or a male human, a photograph of someone of the opposite, and I would say sex as opposed to gender, but you're with me, there are certain responses that are um, sex-typical, gender-typical. And women even, as a function of where they are in their menstrual cycle, will respond differentially to photographs of men in these regions of the, of the brain that we're talking about that are, again, responsive to opposite gender photographs. So in time, I don't see why we can't show photographs <laughs> to female juncos, to female songbirds, and see what they, uh, how they respond. But stepping away from the cognitive aspect of this and the difficulty of quantifying it, I have a student now. Her name is Crystal Kane, and she's very interested in the concept of androgyny as applied to animals. So androgyny would be that sort of indeterminate sex, a phrase for referring to indeterminate sex or gender. And there are lots of attributes of juncos, of songbirds, of animals in general, that are different between the sexes. So we say sexually diamorphic, but really we just mean sex differences. And uh, she's very interested in the individuals among the females that have male-typical expression and the individuals among the males that have more female-typical expression. And just as an example, then, how about a bigger female as opposed to the average-sized female? She would be closer in body size to males than average. What other ways does she differ from your typical female? And what is her relative fitness 
the number of offspring that she will leave in successive generations if she's more male-like uh, as opposed to more female-typical. So there are plenty of ways of asking questions about sex and gender in vertebrate animals that uh, potentially inform our understanding of ourselves. And I think this project that my student Crystal is doing is an, is an example of that. You, you mentioned, in fact, in a recent commentary that I think you published, masculinized dominant females mm-hmm. among juncos. Is, uh-huh. is that the kind of thing you're referring to, the uh, size, or are there other behavioral um, properties that these dominant, masculinized <laughs> right. juncos exhibit? Right. Well, Yes. The study I mentioned by my student is looking more at natural variation. And then she would be asking, if a female is larger than the average, is she also more aggressive than average? Is she also a little more prone to having a compromised immune system the way males might because she's more male-typical? So those would be comparisons of females to males where there's been no manipulation, experimental, the way I was talking about earlier. Uh, But we have done those experimental manipulations with females as well. So we've elevated female testosterone experimentally to see what the consequences would be, hormone to behavior and physiology uh, to fitness. And the the sexes are not identical uh, in this regard. So we are interested in not just in males. We're very, very interested in females and how uh, resemblances between the sexes are maintained uh, and, and the reasons for that. In some other recent work, you inquire whether social status could affect mate preferences in juncos. What is social status or social standing in juncos, and and does it affect a mate preference? Oh, that's a – if I wrote about that, Karen, I'm not coming right to my mind. But let me say (laughs) that um, status is so important in the animal world, and of course I think we could generalize, but we're not – that's not our topic right now. I usually think of status as requiring um, a a group so that there have to be at least a a subset of individuals so that then we would be able to allocate through observing their behavior or some other aspect of their size or whatever, which individuals are high status and which individuals are low status. And this is doable. You can observe birds in a group and they'll have dominance interactions and you'll be able to say, well, this is the one that wins all of them and this is the one that never wins. And so you form a hierarchy uh, and then you can relate rank in the hierarchy to success in some way, likelihood of surviving the winter, likelihood of acquiring a mate. But when we actually look at our juncos in the breeding season, they're what we call territorial. So each male and a female have an area of their own. So there's really just the two of them. I'm overgeneralizing, but it'll, it'll serve our purpose here. And uh, I would say then it's a little hard to uh, assign a status uh, to a group where the male and the female are cooperating, more or less, uh, to, to raise offspring uh, together. So I think it depends on the time of year and it depends on the context. But there are many aspects of success and and success in a Darwinian sense that relate to status, but not one-to-one. Sometimes the better status to have is not to be the one that's out in front and gets picked <laughs> off by the predator, right? That may be true in, for humans yes. as well. <laughs> Thinking of the... Um some of the complicated issues you're, you're studying, the, the, the full range of behavior and their, their care for their young and what's passed on to their young. This, again, may lie slightly outside your main area of research, but what accounts for this kind of fundamental divide that I think we see in birds of, of those who, who just hatch and then are on their own and those that are cared for uh, right. by, by their parents or their one of their parents or both? Right, right, yes. And so I think... You're exactly right. There are orders of birds where the young uh, hatch out of really pretty big eggs and they're quite developed at the time that they hatch out of their eggs and they can almost care for themselves. I mean, the extreme of that uh, would be something called the megapodes where the parents just build a nest of rotting vegetation, lay the eggs in the rotting vegetation, the heat to... Uh, mature the embryo is there in the vegetation and the parents are long gone by the time the young crawl their way out of uh, this uh, mound that's the, and they're ready to go. But that's the extreme. So often the offspring of birds need the care of at least one parent for at least a period of time. 
if they're, I hope this isn't too much uh, detail, but if they're what we call precocial, which is like chicks, where they hatch out of the egg and they have their plumage ready to go and they're uh, peeping and walking right away, then mostly they need to be shown what to eat and protected from predators. But if they're like most songbirds, and 90% of birds are songbirds, then they're what we call altricial, which means they're blind at birth, they're about as helpless as some young we can think of, and then it takes at least one parent and often two to care for them. So some of it depends on the upfront investment in the eggs and the rate of development before or after hatching. But I think the most interesting ones are the species where at least one is required, but does it take one or two? And that evolution of mating systems in birds and the relationship between uh, male parental care and the degree of sex differences in display and making much of yourself if you're a male bird, those things tend to trade off the way we were talking earlier. Well, this is fascinating. I I understand you've brought in some music that also relates to some of your interests, uh, and I'm wondering if you could say a word about the first selection that you oh. brought in. All righty. Well, I brought in a song by Mary Chapin Carpenter, and it's entitled, I Was a Bird, <laughs> which I hope you will think is appropriate. And I love Mary Chapin Carpenter. I, let's, I'm not a person who does a lot of different music. I get a few CDs I really love, and then I play them over and over again as I go to school and as I come home. So this is a song I listen to a lot. was a bird that loved to fly Catching the wind as it went south And I could touch every inch of sky And the sweetest songs trilled from my mouth And I'm no bird anyone can see There's no wind waiting for me It's just a dream, it's just a dream To be a bird flying free This is WFIU's Profiles, and we're speaking today with Dr. Ellen Ketterson. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Alan, you've worked uh, with avian behavior, and one of the things that's interesting about avian behavior is that some birds care for their young. You've suggested that that's partly because those, their young are in a very helpless state. Do they, uh, are there differences among birds in the extent to which they educate their young? Do they educate their young? It's a very challenging question. Do we have teachers in our birds? I'm going to give you a generic answer first, a more general one, which is I think we're learning more and more about the mental capacities of the animals we study. So I I think when I was growing up, it it was pretty much a stimulus response view of animals. And we're now finding, I think, that their mental lives are more complicated and that their capacity to process information and to remember things and to use their memories to make decisions about their behavior is, is all much more sophisticated than we realized. But when it comes to teaching in birds, the real classic example is bird song. So I, I think I said that uh, 90% of the birds on Earth now, the extant birds, the ones that are have not gone extinct, uh, are songbirds. And uh, what that means is they all belong to the same order, and they have the capacity to learn their songs. And that implies a tutor. So the tutor may be uh, a father that... Uh, the song that they hear, the nestlings hear while they're in the nest. Or they may have a sensitive period for learning where they're particularly responsive to songs of their own species that'll come a little bit later after perhaps they've left their home location and settled into the place where they're likely to grow up. And that allows them to match their songs more effectively 
uh, to the local dialect, really. Birds have dialects, and one population will have a distinctly recognizable song that uh, differs from another population, even though they're both the same species. So there's both the same species in that they can interbreed. But if you go to these two locales, the bird's song will not sound the same. Again, so that's our sort of definition of dialects. And they needed to learn those songs, and they learned them from their predecessors. So there's culture. And we actually have a famous uh, student, or two, or her husband, Meredith Weston Drew King, here on the IU campus who study the ways in which uh, birds learn their songs and the cues they use and uh, which attributes uh, females are responsive to, but also what behaviors on the female's part can actually shape or mold a male song. So it isn't just that you learn from your parents. Drew and Meredith happen to study cowbirds. So cowbirds are uh, nest parasites. They don't grow up with their parents. Somebody else raises them, right? So they don't have a chance to learn from their parents. And as it turns out, uh, when they mature, they learn from the males learn from the females. So if the female hears a song she really likes, which we have to imagine, then there's some mental trace in the brain that makes it particularly responsive to that little sequence of sounds. She flicks her wing. And it's so fast you can't even see it. They needed to have super fast uh, video in order to detect that. But these wing flicks on the part of the females, uh, males notice that and then will modify their song in the direction of what got a good response. So, yes, there are tutors, and usually they're parental tutors or older individuals in the neighborhood, uh, but occasionally they can even be your peers. perhaps also copying individuals if you're a male. It's usually the males that sing. So there are species in which females sing. And in fact, if you give females testosterone, they're more likely to sing than they otherwise would be. So the circuits are there, we would say. So yeah, there's a lot of learning that goes on. And birdsong is absolutely a highly developed uh, field of study where we have gotten down to the neural level, down to the genomic level, and the environmental influences. And People often believe, and, I, and I, I think I'm persuaded, that understanding how birds learn their songs helps us understand how people learn to talk uh, because there are enough similarities. Birds have something called a syrinx, and we have something called a larynx. Well, we've both got voice, voice boxes. It's just in the case of the bird, the voice box is down by the lungs, and in the case of humans, the voice box is up here at the base of the throat. But you still have an, you know, an apparatus. Uh, that air has to pass through in order to make a sound, and you have to learn what sounds work and how to articulate the muscles that make the voice box go. So once again, studying uh, a vertebrate animal that's not a human is interesting for its own sake. I want to say that's sufficient for me. I really, truly do believe that. But there are also applications that can make that knowledge useful for humans. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, particularly in in connection with your own work, where, as I noted, it's almost irresistible to make leaps that I assume might not be warranted at all (laughs) from the the animal model to to humans. How is your your work connected with uh, studies in human psychology or other human realms of science? Well, this is a very question I like to be very careful about um, because... One, I've changed over time. So I used to say, I'm sorry, I study birds. (laughs) And if there happens to be applications to humans, well, those are inferences for you to draw. But what I am choosing to understand is how bird behavior evolves. And I happen to be doing that with a hormone, testosterone, that's found in all vertebrates. And I'm looking at sex differences, but what I really care about is birds. But you get a little more relaxed, I think, after you've been doing things for a while or more persuaded by the parallels. But the exact answer to your question, what is the relevance to psychology or something, is that I learn from the psychologists. I learn from the neuroscientists. I learn from the people who are studying these phenomena and from the gender studies people, how they go about their studies, and then I draw inspiration from that to apply to my own. And then I cogitate about uh, parallels with humans and animals, but I'm also pretty cautious because there's a lot of variables there in addition to the similarities. The similarities are there, uh, but the fine points may be the critical points, and so that's why, that's why I'm cautious. And you know, always when I say I, it's very important. I want to say this again. didn't quite uh, round this out, but I work currently now, for example, with six graduate students and two postdoctoral students. And much of the inspiration 
comes uh, from them, and certainly much of the work comes from them. And I've worked with graduate students and undergraduate students and other postdoctoral students over the years. And so when I say I or when I say we've found, uh, I really am referring to the group efforts of people who uh, it gives me great pleasure to work with. Well, you've been an inspiration to your students. You say they've inspired you. Can you uh, explain a little bit more about how the lab works. I know you have field stations or field mm-hmm. laboratories all mm-hmm. over the country. Can you can you say uh, why you have those and, and what it's like for your students to be working with you? Well, I can try. I can't do the last part, of course. <laughs> you would have to ask them. Let's see. We have – I'll just use this summer as an example. So we had – Two graduate students, Crystal and Dustin, who are working in Virginia. So they're carrying out the Junko studies that have been going on there for the past uh, 25 years, as I said. And uh, Dustin is particularly interested in bird song that we were talking about in Junkos, and Crystal in androgyny. But there was also a group in South Dakota, and I mentioned being interested in population comparisons. So there are Junkos that live in South Dakota that are similar but not identical to the juncos that live in Virginia. So we're interested in the role of hormones and the environment in accounting for the differences in appearance and behavior in these two locations. Well, then there's another group in Southern California. So um, Christy uh, Virgin is the person who's working in South Dakota, but there's a person named Jonathan Atwell who's working in California. Once again, uh, there are similarities for the juncos or the snowbirds that live in California, but there are differences as well that we want to understand. And the California situation is particularly interesting because there's a population that has colonized the city of San Diego just 20 years ago. So prior to that, juncos live at high altitudes or they live at high latitudes. So they live up in the spruce fir forests of Canada or they live high on the mountaintops in the Rockies or the Appalachians. They don't live in cities. Or at least they don't breed in cities. They may come down there for the winter. But somehow, for some reason, uh, about 20 years ago, a population of juncos colonized, occupied the campus of the University of California, San Diego. So some biologists there noticed that and said, well, that's strange. They aren't supposed to be here in the summertime. And uh, so we've been studying how rapidly the adaptation to urban environments has been taking place in our bird. So I, I hope I'm being clear there's some same bird different locations, different people, each with their own uh, area of expertise, their own contribution that gives, I hope, uh, and I believe, really, sufficient autonomy to have the satisfaction of being a self-directed scientist and sufficient overlap with other members of the group so that people's findings matter to one another so that they can draw stimulus uh, from each other. And then most recently, this summer, we went to Guatemala and Mexico because there are juncos down there, too, different species. They have yellow eyes instead of dark eyes. But that was a whole new uh, situation for me. And we're making a documentary film, which is one reason we went down there. And we're anxious to share our findings from these 25 years with, uh, with the public. So we met there with landowners who gave us uh, interviews in Spanish uh, And we met with conservation directors. Uh, We went to an island off of Baja, California, where there are a junco lives, but there's only like about 200 of them in the whole world. Mm -hmm. They live on this one little tiny island. So we went to film them. But again, I, I think in response to your question, what it's like to work as a group is to establish your own independent area of inquiry, what you're curious about, what you want to contribute to the state of knowledge, but also to work in a collaborative, interactive group with others. And each of these individuals that are conducting their own research uh, provide opportunities for undergraduates to do research. So there were several undergraduates in uh, South Dakota. We were training what we call RU, Research Experiences for Undergraduates, uh, three such students, uh, some undergrads from IU uh, in Virginia. So it's uh, it spreads. It, it bifurcates and then the you know, the tree spreads again and then the tree branches again uh, until finally there's really quite a collective group of people with shared interest, different levels of expertise, some learning to be mentors, some just learning, uh, some at- attempting to stay on top of all the good work that's being done by the other people. Well, that's, that's really marvelous. I mean, it suggests a, a, a full range of outreach activity as you're, you're, you talk about the documentary that will uh, let 
the public know about what you're doing and a, and, a, and a range of involvement from the beginning student to the graduate student to the postdoctoral student to the the practicing scientist. Your area is is one that um, I, I can imagine is is fascinating to a lot of the public. I mean, a lot of the public. Uh, involves bird watchers, as you, mm-hmm. you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and and people tend to pursue this in, in in you know looking at birds. They find them fascinating, and in an amateur way, look at it. I suppose it's in in some ways like people who look at the stars and you know sometimes see asteroids. Do you have a um, any view about why that is, and is it is it the case that amateurs can contribute in any way to um, the science you do? Oh my goodness, yes. I I think the answer to that. Second question is 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 surely yes, uh, and then the first question why are why are people so interested in birds? You know, of course, not everybody is, <laughs> but I teach an undergraduate biology of birds class, and uh, I just say right out day one syllabus. Uh, one of my primary objectives here is to have you uh, love birds by the time this class is over, and and so we have a little phrase appreciation through knowledge. You know. But lots of times people don't need. Uh, any kind of formal training. They're just drawn to these animals that fly mm. and often are brightly colored, that they're around in the daytime the way we are, you know, and they're in the trees or come to your bird feeder. Uh, they're not underground. Uh, and They're not only off in the Arctic. They're right here in your backyard. That's one of the reasons I like the songbird we study so much because it's it's so ever-present. It's all cultures, really. In the first lecture in my biology birds class, we look at coins, we look at stamps, we look at cave paintings. Uh, human beings are taken with birds, uh, and I, it may really be just about flight and color. It's mm. as simple as that. But it's it's not uh, just urban dwellers in the 21st century. It's mm. it's something about how we are. And one example that comes to mind is the Laboratory of Ornithology at Cornell University. I wish it were here at Indiana University, but it happens to be at Cornell University. And they have um, really worked very hard to provide opportunities for serious amateurs to contribute data, numbers, observations, that will be um, helpful. So if we're concerned about the numbers of individuals declining in certain species, certain kinds of birds, you can say, well, there were a lot more of them around when my dad was a kid, or you can actually know how many there are. <laughs> and so if you have a clearinghouse for data and if you provide people with an opportunity or instruction, really, about how to observe at their bird feeder or how to count birds when they take what we call breeding bird surveys, so they'll drive in the spring months when the birds are most abundant and they're singing most frequently, and follow a protocol so that all these amateurs all across the country are following the same protocol and then reporting to the Lab of Ornithology or to a governmental agency, how many birds did I see? What songs were they doing? Uh, How many stops along my way was the bird present? And that information gives us the ability to graph. You know, those numbers are increasing. Those numbers are decreasing. The rate of decrease is increasing. We better be careful. Uh, and those those opportunities are there. Occasionally, we'll have a high school student get in touch and want to help. And they'll say, okay, I've enjoyed this, but I, I want something more. So this will be that subset of amateurs that enjoy doing this, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, "Is there? Some, can I participate in your research? Is there something I can do where I really feel that I'm generating new knowledge uh, about a specific system and and we can do that. So the student I mentioned, Dustin, who uh, is studying song, was working with a high school student last winter, and she decided to come to Indiana University. <laughs> so she's a freshman here now, and she's still working with Dustin. Uh, but that was a, an outgrowth of, one, liking birds, two, going to the Laboratory of Ornithology and participating in citizen science, as they call it, and then three, saying, well, I'm really serious about this. I need to find someone who will give me even more instruction. So, uh, that, yes, that, that's that's marvelous. I mean, and it's the it's that path from uh, interest and curiosity to 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 science and science contributions that you talked about in your own career path. When uh, you actually develop a science research program, of course, you do need some support to uh, carry on all these activities. And we know that uh, there are various issues the nation is facing and 
uh, with support for scientific research. Do you do you have views about how this nation might better support uh, science or or the place of funding for scientific research in public universities in particular? Well, I think knowing science is so important to being a, a functional, effective citizen. Right. So we need science teachers at every level. And we also need new knowledge. Uh, things are changing very fast. The environment's changing very fast. If we're to be prepared, if we're to cope, then this, this new knowledge will be critical in that way. So I, you know, you always have to worry, are you just being self-serving when you say, I wish Congress were putting more money into science research. Uh, so, of course, I can't always see clearly. But I have I, I know my reasons, and my reasons are the ones that I've, I've just given, which mm-hmm. is the opportunity to pass along knowledge so that people can have a deeper understanding of the issues that we face and uh, creating the knowledge that will help us cope with uh, the situations that we face. And that's that requires funding. Mm-hmm. And some of the newest techniques are are particularly money-intensive. I'm very concerned about the people who are finishing their PhDs right now because uh, public institutions are not able to hire at the rate that they used to. So people who've had academic careers in mind where they could share their knowledge and teach and where they could learn new things are kind of backing up here at the finished degree, no full-time position to go on to. And that would be a terrible waste of human knowledge. That would be just a terrible waste of, you know, of a human, human resources. So I'm very concerned about people at that stage that they don't leave uh, the academic world, which is the one I know best, or that they don't miss out on opportunities to be part of NGOs or be part of the uh, governmental support system. And we need trained scientists everywhere. You know, we really do. Uh, not at the expense of everything. It's at that quantitative analytical, all right, let's take this apart in pieces. It's not sufficient. It's necessary. It's necessary, to my, my way of thinking, to have a rational appreciation for the world around us. And then I think we add more to it. I'm aware that I'm talking to a humanist by sharing our experiences with other people and learning that there are many ways to react to the natural world besides the numbers that I've been talking about. So we need the ups and the downs for the numbers of birds, but we also need the cave paintings and the inspiration that people find in the natural world that will be lost if the natural world isn't there to enjoy that makes us more human. Uh, that's that's a, a very compelling answer. It's not just the investment that's been made in these particular individuals who uh, have so much to offer, but the but we all need what they have to offer. I believe in, that in, yes. in order to cope with the world as we find it and as it's changing. Could you say just a few words? We have very little time left, but um, about some of the things that you see as the most exciting directions for research in your area. Thank you for the opportunity. This is a genomics world, okay, <laughs> or a proteomics world. So let me um, – the, the words are new enough to me that, that when I go to provide the definitions, I, I even still struggle a little bit. But knowing the sequences of the nucleic acids that make up the genes that cause one kind of organism to look and behave and act differently from another kind of organism or living thing is just now – becoming possible. And we still have just a long way to go. Uh, this does relate to funding. You want to do an experiment like this and cost you $9,000 in an afternoon. You know? So this is not the kind of money that I'm used to spending. But in this past year, we were able to work with people in the biology department. Mind you, I used to be a paper and pencil biologist, okay? But work with the people in the biology department for the Center of Genomics and Bioinformatics. And they were able to take from one of our songbirds, uh, isolate all of the DNA, which again is the material that makes up the genes, all the DNA that was being copied uh, into form enzymes and proteins and things like that. And those are the molecules that make a junko a junko. And now we know their sequences. And now we'll be able to compare them to other closely related junko populations or species. But we'll also be able to say, okay, this is all the proteins and enzymes they're making when they're young, 
but what are the proteins and enzymes they make when they're old? And these are the ones that the females make, but which are the ones that the males make? So we'll be able to understand sort of at the level of what compounds are being produced in the cell because the genes are being copied that help us understand how males differ from females, how we vary as we age, and how we respond to our environments. And this is a whole new level of understanding, which, as I say, is going to be extremely expensive uh, to learn about, but it's quite exciting to me. I was not trained as a molecular biologist. You know, I was trained as a behavioral biologist, and I wasn't really kidding about the paper and pencil, you know. Uh, <laughs> but that's the, uh, that's the future, and that future includes uh, many more complications than I think we were aware of at first. I think we thought we knew once we knew the sequences, once we knew what the order of the compounds in the genes were, we would know everything. But nope, sometimes they're turned on and sometimes they're turned off. Sometimes the environment turns that, uh, makes that decision. Sometimes your mom, in the uh, remote sense, makes that decision. So we really have a great deal more to learn about genes and the environment about nature and nurture, and that intersection is what excites me the very most. That's exciting. It's a good example of the way in which the things you learn turn into things that provide you more questions that you need to investigate. Always. It's it's a marvelous example of of the way in which science goes on. Uh, I think we uh, need to thank you at this point. I'd love to hear more, but um, our time has elapsed. We've been speaking with Dr. Ellen Ketterson. Ellen, thank you for being with us. Karen, thank you for having Uh, me. We'll take the program out with some music that uh, Professor Ketterson has chosen. This is Karen Hansen for Profiles. Thanks for listening. Something much bigger as usual I said Though no one was around I had a dream at the end of my dreaming An elephant fell from a cliff to the sea And I watched as he tumbled down into the water And he swam away, no one saw me The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, Executive Producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.